Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City. On this show, we change a question from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next for Baltimore. Today, we're discussing the future of foster care. What is best for children, their parents, and foster parents? Foster care, according to the Adoption Council, is defined as a temporary living situation for children whose parents are unable, unwilling, or unfit to care for them, and whose need for care has come to the attention of child welfare agency staff. But foster care in the United States is in trouble. Over 92,000 children were removed from their home due to parental drug abuse, a 7% growth over 2015, and almost 167,000 children 61% of them entering care were placed in foster care due to neglect, which is often exacerbated by parental drug use. A few other stats that paint a problematic picture. African-American children are overrepresented in the foster care system, accounting for 24% of total placements. And yet, African-American children are less likely to be adopted, representing only 18% of total adoptions. Here in Maryland, there are nearly 4,000 children in our foster care system. So with that, how do we ensure a future where children, parents, and foster parents are all provided with the best possible care? Here to help us explore this complicated and incredibly important issue, uh, we have a great lineup of guests. And the first to join us are two women with experience in the foster care system. They've both been foster care moms. Yvonne Wegner is a writer for the Baltimore Sun and the author of a multimedia series called The Wait, detailing her journey with the foster care system and how she came to ultimately adopt her daughter, Adeline. And we're also very grateful to have here a member of the WYPR family, Carolyn Jewell, and she's the director of membership. She and her husband have also recently begun their journey through the foster care system. It is an absolute joy to be able to speak with both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Mm, thanks, Wes. And so, Yvonne, I, I'd like to start with you. Uh, and so for, for, for those listeners who have not had a chance to listen to The Wait uh, and to hear the full story, I highly advise you to do it. I, I, I actually reached out to Yvonne after I got a chance to, uh, to read the piece and listen to it because I was just so taken by the journey and taken by her honesty. Um, but... Yvonne, I'd like to start with you, and if you could just give us a short version of what the wait is and how you first got started in the foster care system. After trying to have a baby for about a decade, um, my husband and I went through a series of um, kind of debates and discussions about how we wanted to build our family, if we wanted to pursue infertility treatment, um, foster care, uh, or adoption. And we decided that we were going to become foster parents for a lot of reasons. And while I was going through it, we we fostered uh, two brothers for about two years, and it was really hard. And it was amazing, and it was um, 
the best thing I've ever done with my life. Uh, but I knew when I was in the middle of it that I had to write about it because I had something to say that I thought was important for other people to hear, people who were considering being foster parents and even maybe workers or, you know, people who are from the system. Um, I just I wanted to share what I had been through. So, Carolyn, I, I want to come to you and, you know, in context of, of what we just heard and hear about your experience uh, becoming a foster parent. And what was that process like for you? I first became acquainted with the idea of fostering to adopt actually through a Stoop Storyteller series. Oh, so wow. years ago, I went to um, a series, the theme was parenting. And I'll never forget, even though this was probably 10 years or more ago, um, the last gentleman who got up to speak talked about his experience taking in a foster son uh, with his partner and hoping to adopt and raising this child from a baby to a two-year-old. And then one day, just out of the blue, getting a call that um, the judge had awarded the child back to the parents. And although you would think this was a cautionary tale, something about it just really stuck with me. My husband and I had always talked about wanting to maybe start a family with a mix of our own children and maybe adopting. And because we are really invested in the future of Baltimore and we live here and we want to see the city be the best it can be, we thought that fostering to adopt through Baltimore City's Department of Social Services was the right fit for us. So we started classes back in the spring. It's uh, pretty intensive. Um, you know, they fingerprint, they do home inspections, they talk to people, they interview you, um, you have these classes with the uh, Department of Social Services. And in October, uh, it wasn't even a week after we were approved, we got a call um, about our little boy. His name was Jamel. He was two days old. And when he was five days old, we went to the hospital and we picked him up. Um, it was an amazing experience. Um, it was our first child, uh, so there was a lot of excitement from our friends and our family, um, as with any new baby who comes home from the hospital. Um, and the situation with Jamel's mother was that she had just kind of, she had a lot of um, emotional and um, um, just a lot of difficulties. Uh, she had two other children that weren't in her care. And so initially it looked like, you know, it was promising that we might be able to adopt. Um, uh, but about two months after we brought Jamil home, she identified the father. Um, the father had her other two children. And after he took a paternity test that came back positive, um, the direction started looking like Jamel was going to go home to his father. And that happened when he was about five months old after he'd been with us for five months. Can you uh, tell us about what that was like when you first heard that news <laughs> after him being with you for five months? Yeah, it was um, like the floor falls out. It was really difficult. We sort of hadn't been prepared, really. Um, we had been, we knew obviously that the paternity test had taken place and we were waiting and waiting and waiting to hear the results. And um, we had been asking the social worker and she sort of kept kind of changing the subject or brushing us off or uh, I have to go to another meeting or another visit. Um, so when she sat down in our home one day for one of the monthly scheduled visits, um, we weren't prepared for it at all. And uh, we were talking about doctor's appointments and all other things that were coming up um, for Jamel. And um, she stopped us and she said, well, you're probably not going to be taking him to those appointments because the paternity test came back. Um, the father is the father. And the judge is probably going to award him Jamel back to the father uh, in about a week and a half. 
in a week and a half. Mm -hmm. We were fortunate uh, that the judge actually decided that the father wasn't ready. Um, and so the father was given a, an additional month. So essentially we had about a little less than six weeks um, to prepare for him to leave. So as you can imagine, it was a crazy time <laughs> trying to absorb everything we could about this little boy who was essentially our child. You know, we had been with him every day, doing everything for him. Um, so being with him and also preparing for that day. And so for y Yvonne, you know, the, I, I think the thing that for a lot of people, maybe for a lot of listeners who might not uh, understand this, this, this idea and this dynamic of the foster care system, uh, the reality is, is that it is a system where you do know there's a good percentage of chance that your heart will be broken with this process, which is an amazingly difficult process. You know, as you were going through that process, and particularly uh, as you now went through it, you know, you've now been involved in, in uh, you know, in, in multiple different frames. How did you think about that process and how do you prepare yourself for that, walking into that knowing that there is a chance that, you know, that, uh, that my heart's gonna be broken in this process. I did a lot of soul searching and decided that this was what was right for my family. And I can look back on my life and see what I feel like were a lot of guideposts over the years that were, was leading me in this direction. It was, you know, the time when I was a little girl in Catholic school, when I heard for the first time that there were uh, boys and girls who didn't have a mom and dad in a home like I did to go to. Um, and then it was, um, you know, being drawn to adoption always, thinking, I don't know if I want to have my own biological child. I, you know, I, I see these images of children in need, um, whether they're, it's domestic or international, and I think maybe that's what's right for me. Um, to, you know, my experience being a reporter and being drawn to stories about adoption and foster care. And, um, and so when my husband and I were going through some of the infertility testing, uh, it was around 2015, and it was uh, not long after our city had gone through the riot, uh, some people call it the uprising, in April of 2015. And as a, a family that lives in Baltimore, we thought a lot about what we could do to make the city better. And I thought, like, this is what I can do. I can become a foster parent. I can be the place that a child can come when he or she needs to be warm and safe and protected and loved and uh, shown respite, you know, in what is likely um, – one of the hardest points in their little life. And so I knew that um, my heart was likely to be broken, um, but I also thought that I was strong enough and I thought that I could use my life in this way. Um, I am a person of faith and I, I, I would say to God, I want you to use my life. And, and that prayer was answered with the ability to become a foster parent and do the best that I could at it. So yeah, I knew my heart was going to be broken, but I was um, I was jumping in with both feet. And if I could just add, you know, Yvonne's a great reporter, so she has the statistics about how many children go back. But my experience was that they are that information is not widely available, and we actually heard from our social worker and our teachers two completely different statistics. First, our social worker told us that about eight to nine out of 10 children who go into foster care 
end up being adopted by their foster parents. And later, <laughs> the teachers uh, who taught the class to prepare you to be a foster parent told us the exact opposite, which is eight to nine out of 10 children end up being Return. reunified. And I don't think that information is widely available. And um, I think there are reasons that information is not <laughs> widely available. Why do you think that information, what, what do you think some of the reasons are? Because I think that it's really difficult to, you know, as you alluded to in, in your last question, it's difficult to convince people that this is something to take on because it is so emotionally difficult. Uh, I mean, people thought we were crazy when we told them. I mean, I don't think people thought when they would initially have this reaction, when we would tell them we're going to foster to adopt and this is what it would mean, their natural reaction is, why? Why would you put yourself through that? Um, so I think it can be difficult, and I think social workers have to use all the tools they can to try to do their job, which is look after the children. One of the things I, I so deeply admire about both you guys is is your willingness to be open and transparent about your experiences, about your lessons learned, um, with your emotions. So, Carolyn, if, if someone comes up to you right now and says, I'm thinking about going through the foster care system in Baltimore, What's the first thing that comes out of your mouth when you say that to them, when they ask you that question? I think it's a great decision. It is something you will never regret, even after everything we've been through. If I could go back tomorrow and still get that call about Jamel, I would take him again. But it's expect the unexpected. You know, I mean, we, as silly as this might sound, obviously the focus of... This program is the children, but the resource parents, that's what we're called, the foster parents, because we are a resource in this in this process. We are not the priority, and our feelings and our emotions are not the priority for the social worker, for the judge, for the biological parents. So it's, and, and everyone's situation is different. Every case is different. So we as a community of foster parents rely on each other a lot. When Jamel first left, I didn't have anybody who had gone through that experience. So I reached out to Yvonne, and she's been amazingly helpful to me because I, no one knows what that's like unless you've gone through it. Um, but everybody's case is different. And comparing notes, we just, <laughs> it's, oh, your social worker did this, or, well, they said this hearing is coming up. Well, we didn't have that hearing, and <laughs> it's just you can't ever prepare for it. Mm-hmm. And I think the only thing that we can ask from our society is that the same thing that you would say to those parents, where else can they find a place where they can feel, you know, loved and, and, and nourished and supported, is that as a system that we can do the same thing for the resource parents mm-hmm. and the people who are actually stepping up. Uh, I have one final question, and uh, I'm going to you, give it to you, Carolyn. Uh, one day, Jamel is going to be old enough to hear this and understand it. Uh, what do you hope that he hears and what do you want to say to him? I hope that he hears that he was so special that two families wanted him. That's perfect. That's so lovely. That was so lovely, Carolyn. We've been speaking with Baltimore Sun reporter Yvonne Wagner. She's the author of the multimedia series, The Wait, about her journey with the foster care system. If you haven't heard it, I, I urge you to, to listen to it. Uh, we've also been joined by Carolyn Jewell, who's the director of membership 
and a fellow foster care mom. Thank you both for not just being here today. Thank you both for sharing your journeys and sharing your hearts with all of us. You're welcome. Thank you. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. Today on the show, we've been discussing the future of foster care. To help us understand this complex system, we are now joined by the resident Maryland expert, on foster care. Dean Richard P. Barth is the Dean of the School of Social Work at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. He has experiences from across the country and has plenty of innovative ideas about how we could create positive change in this incredibly overburdened system. Dean Barth, it is a joy to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my privilege to talk with you. What is the current status then uh, for the foster care system here in Maryland, if, if, a, if a student comes up to you and says, you know, this is a this is a space that I'm interested in, what's what's the what's the current environment look like? What's your response? So I think Maryland is one of the stronger states with regard to child welfare services. Uh, we are um, innovative insofar as the state has committed to uh, continuous quality improvement process, some of which we operate out of the University of Maryland School of Social Work. Uh, we're innovative insofar as we have partnerships with some of our counties, like Baltimore County, that's really trying to bring in evidence-based mental health services to the kids in foster care, because although children in foster care don't go into foster care because they have mental health problems per se, they often do nonetheless have difficulties because of the experiences they've had and the transitions they have to undergo. Um, we have been now for about 15 years working very closely with the state of Maryland to look at the data so we understand uh, what's happening to children. So, for example, Terry Shaw has been working with them very closely to say, what happens when we send kids home and they come back in? What are the reasons for that? How can we reduce that? That's such a disappointment to everybody. It's also a safety concern. If you've gone back home, we assume that you're getting enough services to be safe. And if you're not and you're coming back into care, then we need to do some work there. So I think it's a great place, actually, to work in child welfare services. We have about half as many children in foster care now as we did 12 years ago. So we've narrowed the scope of kids in an out-of-home care placement. But we still get 50,000 reports every year of children who are of concern to somebody who takes the trouble to actually call in to Child Welfare Services and where Child Welfare Services says, yes, uh, I'm going to screen this in because I understand that your concern seems very plausible. And so there's lots of work to be done there. And, uh, and I could go on with all the opportunities to improve child welfare, but I do believe that in general, this state has got a significant commitment to doing just that, to making child welfare services better. 
So I want to I want to dig into a little, into a little bit into what you just said about how we're about half now when it comes to placements within CWS. Mm-hmm. Uh, how also has the criteria changed as to how we think about which kids get placed? Uh, you know, because you know, I think for a lot of people, there's probably a lot of ideas and potentially a lot of misconceptions about what it takes, the type of situations we're talking about for a child actually to be removed and placed within within the system. How has that evolved over the years, and what does that look like now? So, one of the things that Maryland has done is it has put a process at the beginning of the um, child welfare path that's called um, family group decision making or family team decision making family involvement meetings. There are a bunch of different names. But basically, it's to say, before we take a child out or take them out for very long, we want to bring in all the relatives, all the family members, teachers, bus drivers, anybody else who could help, uh, mental health professionals, health professionals, to see what alternatives there are. So by having these early on family um, discussions, we're able to find alternatives very often to placing a child into a home or into a residential treatment center where they don't know anybody. Um, so that's been an important part of it. The other thing, the other big push has been to reduce the use of out-of-home care for older kids who have actually behavioral health problems. So how do, we, how do we define older? Older, generally 10 and older, but really should be 14 or so and older. But these are kids whose parents have... Uh, not been able to manage them, and so then sometimes come to the child welfare to get assistance in doing that, and they were going into residential treatment. And so we have cut residential treatment by, well, more than half, by nearly 100%. So it's way down from where it used to be. And trying to find other ways of helping those parents and those kids that don't require residential treatment, that that, uh, draw on in-home services. So providing you know, basically like a residential bed at home with the same level of support and professionalization. So that's been a major um, area of progress in Maryland. Are there places that Maryland is looking at right now that are serving as really interesting test cases, beacons that we want to pay attention to? States, jurisdictions, other countries that are doing things that you're saying, that's interesting, and the state of Maryland should pay attention to it. Well, there are bits and pieces. Uh, the child welfare world is very decentralized. We have 3,000 counties in this country, and all of them are really quite different from each other. So there are places that we're looking and initiatives. So uh, the Quality Parenting Initiative is an initiative that's in about 20 states, and Maryland certainly looking at it. And they're the folks who are really leading the charge with regard to this notion of co-parenting and the foster parents really being a partner with the biological parents. Uh, Allegheny County in uh, Pittsburgh is doing a really good job at trying to figure out which are the cases that we need to pay the most attention to because we've all heard of stories and they've been in the paper very recently where the child welfare agency goes out and they look at a family and they don't really understand the seriousness of what they're doing and so in Pittsburgh they're um, really trying to refine what is what does a computer algorithm say would be the top 10% of cases in terms of likely severity or likely harm? And what are the workers saying? And what's the difference? And how do we figure out how to use that information to make better decisions? So out of those 50,000 uh, visits that we do, we cannot 
begin to open all those cases or provide all of them with the quality or level of services that they could benefit from. So we have to make some tough choices, and some places are doing a better job on that, uh, and we, are, I think, are looking to them. Um, there are other countries um, where other innovations are going on. So one of the concepts that uh, we took from Sweden, for example, when we were in California, was that in some cases, the ideal is going to be to take the biological parent and the children into care together. They both are have become disorganized. They become dangerous to a certain extent if they're not supervised, but they both need, it's a part of the two-generational parenting movement. Mm -hmm. And I think there's room not only to have dinners and meetings and conversations between foster parents and biological parents, but even to think about ways that we could share this care together, as we call it, shared family care. Um, it addresses issues of homelessness. It addresses or housing instability, but it also provides both family preservation and child protection at the same time. So uh, there have been a few efforts to start that up, but it needs a little more work. The last thing I'll mention is that there's a lot of work going on around the country, and Maryland is right in the thick of it, and some people are looking to us around this issue of, of really providing high-quality evidence-based practices, behavioral health practices that are um, provided to foster parents, biological parents, and kids so that the problems that have arisen and resulted in hard-to-manage behavior get reduced and don't compound the other issues around safety. Dean Richard P. Barth of the University of Maryland Baltimore School of Social Work and a real, real leader in this field and beyond. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Coming up, what states are moving in the right direction when it comes to foster care? What biases do we have that are hurting families and children? Also, what was it like for Tony Hines, a black man, to be raised by two white mothers. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. Today, we've been discussing the incredibly complex reality of the foster care system. I'm so excited to be joined now by Daniel Heimpel, who is an award-winning journalist and child welfare expert. As the president of Fostering Media Connections, Heimpel acts as publisher of the nonprofit journalism organization's two publications, The Chronicle of Social Change, and Fostering Families Today magazine. Daniel, it is a joy to have you on. Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you for having me, Wes. Very happy to be here. Can you talk a little bit about the current situation in California when it comes to the foster care system and how people are thinking about the future state of it? Yeah, California is uh, in many ways ahead of the curve in terms of its desire and activity behind reducing the number of kids that live in so-called group homes. So, so these facilities where you've got six or more kids, that could be um, a house or it could be a residential treatment facility where you've got uh, clinical staff on call. Um, there's been a big push also on the federal level 
uh, after California started this work to disinvest from these facilities out of the concern that it was institutionalization of kids, kids were languishing there for too long, and they weren't getting the kind of support they needed to be able to go off into adulthood um, ready to go. So California has, has spent a lot of time uh, dropping uh, its reliance on, on group homes, which is, is now become the, the rule, uh, rule on the federal level. That's not to say that there are not a lot of problems um, with doing that, um, but California has definitely staked a claim early that that's the way they wanted to go. Um, and, and, and so that's one, one area. I think the other area is California had a really kind of deplorable record of uh, treating the relatives who step in as foster parents as second-class citizens, essentially diverting them out of the resources that they w should and should have gotten. Um, but along with this move away from group homes, they've also uh, increased payments and essentially elevated relatives to the same status that, that non-relative stranger foster parents would get in terms of money and support from the system. One group that oftentimes is, is not spoken about is the impact on the biological parents, uh, and many of whom are, are, are hoping to be reunited with their children in all this. Can you talk a little bit about the experience with them and the built-in supports that exist for uh, for the biological parents? Yeah, I mean, this is the you know what you know what they call um, termination of parental rights. It's, you know, the, the it's the equivalent of the death penalty. So they call it the civil death penalty. I mean, you could imagine. Mm -hmm. Wes, are you a father? Yeah, fa father of seven-year-old and a five-year-old. Okay, so so you know, and I'm a father of a four-year-old about to have another baby. Um, uh, congrats and. Thank you, thank you. That's coming soon. They, you know, so once you're a parent, I think you can appreciate this more, maybe. Um, but the thought of the state coming in and taking my child away from me is, I would rather go to jail. I mean, yes. I, I, I would maybe rather get the death penalty myself, honestly, yeah. if my kid was taken away from me forever. And so you're talking about such an incredible um, use of power in people's lives. And, you know, bio parents uh, are, you know, it's, it's easy to demonize them, obviously. You know, we're talking about quote-unquote child abuse. You know, you're talking about some things, and then, then what, what does the media read about? They read about, you know, what do they write about? They write about the child deaths. You know, they cover this child deaths, these really egregious case, cases where you have, you know, just horrendous parents. And that, you know, back to the point of why I started the work that we do is because that's not the entire truth. You know, those isolated examples aren't, aren't a way to create policy. They aren't a way to judge whether or not a system is working, and they aren't a way to judge whether or not a foster kid's a good kid or, or if, a, if a biological parent's a bad parent. I mean, you can't bring all those prejudgments into it, but I think that this system does that quite often. And um, of late, you know, we've been spending a lot of time going into these child welfare courts across the country um, with our reporters, in half of the states, these these are closed, and you know, you, but you can see the level of 
um, you know, the level of defense and how, how confusing this system is if you're a biological parent. I mean, Wes, your, ch- your children are removed, to, removed tomorrow, um, and you've got a hearing now, you know, um, and you're poor. Uh, depending on what state you're in, you know, you, you, you know, you may not be getting an attorney until, until the, the, the hearing to terminate the per, your parental rights. So there is a um, there is a, uh, I, I think that that is the area of the system that needs the most work is that we need to focus the most attention on um, on the way we think about biological parents and the way we bring them into the system um, and bring them you know and, and not abridge their due process rights in in, in this system. We've been speaking with Daniel Heimpel, who is the president of Fostering Media Connections. Daniel, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. So today on the show, we've been discussing the foster care system and what needs to change. And to end our show today, we're excited to be joined by Tony Hines. He works with Adoptions Together, an adoption placement agency. And he's also the author of the memoir, the son with two moms. And he writes and speaks about his experiences as a transracial adoptee and the child of a same-sex couple. Tony, it is so good to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Wes. And, and, and I can call you Tony Hines for now, but in a few years, going to be Dr. Hines. So I'm just prepared. I'm prepared <laughs> to make that transition for the rest of your life, man, of being Dr. Hines. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're a PhD student now at UMBC. That's correct. What, what's your PhD going to be in? It's going to be in the program Language, Literacy, and Culture. And what it is, it's an interdisciplinary program where you can kind of pick and choose what type of research you want to do. And I really want to do research on transracial, or as I call it, interracial adoption. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what I'm going to be focusing on there. So this is obviously a very personal topic to you as well. And so, you know, obviously reflected in in how how excited you are about the the PhD. can you tell us a little bit about your story and what brought you? Yes. So I was adopted from the D.C. foster care system when I was five years old by parents Mary Hines and Janet Simons. And my adoption went like all other adoptions went. It was granted. My moms were, were my adoptive parents, and everything was, was fine. But then about three months or so after the adoption had been granted, A panel of three judges said that a white, same-sex-headed household wasn't the right household to raise a black child in, and they overturned that adoption. What year is this? This was 1995. And so my moms decided to appeal that decision, and they appealed that decision all the way up to the Supreme Court, where it was knocked down to the lower courts who decided upon a joint custody agreement between my birth family and my adoptive family. Now... I was still raised by Mary and Janet seven days a week. However, the joint custody agreement stipulated that I was to see my birth family as well. And what we did was I saw my birth family every other weekend, usually on a Sunday, and I would spend the whole day with them. And then I would go home, and I wouldn't talk about how my day was with my birth family because, quite frankly, it was... It was a difficult situation for me. It was it was awkward. It was it was tough. There was definitely a split a, a sense of split loyalties that existed there. And I think a lot of adoptees feel that. A lot of 
former foster youth feel that as well. It's this kind of warring sense of identity between who am I? Am I the person that was adopted? Am I the person that exists as a member of the birth family? Am I neither one of those? And how come I can't fully relate to either one of those in the way that I would really like to do? How come I can't be like all the other kids? And so you're just reminded of that when you're with your birth family after spending time with your foster family or adoptive family. And in addition to that, I was raised by two moms and two white moms as well. So there was also, as you, as you said, Wes, you know, when you asked me the question, this was 1995, there was some tension there that existed around issues of race and same-sex headed households as well that went on when I saw my birth family. And so these were things when I got home that I didn't want to talk to my moms about because I wanted to protect them. I didn't want to tell them about some of the negative things that were that were said over there. I didn't want to talk to them about my birth family because there were some things as far as terminology that they used about my birth family that I didn't particularly like. The example I use all the time is I I said when I was when I was much older, I think I was actually in college. And I had come home from visiting my birth family. And my mom, my adoptive mom said, how is Miss Davis doing? And I said, fine, because that's how I had always responded to that question. And then I went back and I thought about it. And I was like, you know what? I actually don't like the fact that Miss Davis is being used instead of my grandmother. And that's something that I hadn't thought about up until that point. And there are these little things, these little microaggressions that some people would call them that go on back and forth, back and forth. And those are things that you have to navigate. And those are things that you have to, as a former foster youth, adopted youth, take ownership of. And hopefully you've gotten the support in your life to give you the agency to speak up like I did and to tell my mom, you know what, mom, I'm I'm not comfortable with you saying Miss Davis. I prefer that you would say my grandmother. And she said, oh, okay, that's fine. And ever since then she has. But those types of things happen all the time. And it becomes... It becomes a challenge, but a challenge that I really think that we can meet if we address and support kids the way that we need to. When this court battle was going on, you were how old? I was five when when that decision was made. But the court battle lasted for a while. I would say I think it lasted for for about two or three years or so, actually. So what happened during that period of time was I found out that the adoption had been overturned when I was at I was on a field trip. And when I was on this field trip, I remember playing with a friend of mine and then I just heard this loud shrieking noise. And then I I instinctively ran to the sound of the loud shrieking noise. I didn't know who it was or where it was coming from. I just ran. Then I remember I got to um I got to this field and I saw a semicircle of people just crowded around this one person. This one person was shrieking and screaming the same five words. They're going to take Tony. They're going to take Tony. Mm -hmm. And I saw that it was my mother Mary who was saying this, who was shrieking this. And in that moment I realized that, that she was right, that they, that they were going to take me, right? The caller that, um, that you had earlier on this show, he talked about what happens when birth families are not allowed to, to raise their children and how kids are, are ripped 
from from the homes and, and that is true and we've also seen particularly in African American homes African American homes are twice as likely to be in, investigated by child protective services for abuse and neglect so he's right that does happen but we also have instances where we have kids that that don't really know what's going on and they just want to stay with the only families that they've ever known but the adults in the equation are the ones that are deciding and that's what happened in that moment in my case. And so I say that to say that that's when it started. That's when the custody battle started. I was told by my moms that we were going to fight this, um, and we did. And later we found out that the social worker who was our social worker, in this case my social worker, was telling my birth family that, hey, if this white adoptive family adopts Tony, then you're never going to get to see him again. Hey, if this white adoptive family adopts Tony, then they won't know how to raise him as a black man in this world. Hey, if this white adoptive family adopts Tony, then he'll never even understand what it means to be a, a member of your family in this way. And so, of course, when you hear things like that, you're going to be inclined to, to fight for your kin, to fight for the, the people that you want in your life. And so we didn't have the support system that, that we should have had at that particular moment in time. And there was a lot of miscommunication on, on both sides. And when you decided to actually put this down on paper, write a memoir, tell a story, also because your story uh, could not just help people, but also help people who are going through similar situations not feel so alone. Talk to us about that process when you decided to put this down on the paper. I remember finding my mother Mary's journal. And my mother Mary, my adoptive mother, she happened to pass away of cancer. And she left behind this journal about how she was feeling during her first chemotherapy treatments. And I read this, I read this journal of hers, and I just felt this this wealth of emotion. And I knew that I that I wanted to write about it, about those emotions that I was feeling. And so I put some words down on a page, and those words turned to paragraphs, and the paragraphs turned to pages, turned to chapters. And then eventually, I had a whole book. And you found yourself in a situation where you had two people who were different from you, uh, two white parents who said, but we want to take and, you know, take a black child in and, and, and make them part of our family. Uh, what are the unique dynamics that are important for people to understand about interracial uh, uh, interracial, interracial adoptions, interracial foster care systems? What were the things that you learned throughout that process? And, we're, and, and how you would ask all of us to think about that when it comes to this dynamic within our foster care systems. Learn history in a new way. Mm. That's what I would start with. Learn how history has impacted your life from a racial lens, from a sexual orientation lens, from, from a class lens as well. That's what we tell our adoptive families to understand, and that's what we need to understand as a society better. We also tell our parents, of course, to surround your kids with people that look like them. And we use this concept called racial mirrors. And we say that if you don't have kids at your kids' schools who look like them, if their teachers don't look like them, if you're not inviting people to dinner who look like them, if you're not having them read books, if you're not having them watch TV shows and movies, from people who, who represent their identities in some way, then you're not doing your job as a parent for them. They need to be supported. They need to see them 
to see themselves represented positively by positive role models in their communities. But we also need to understand when structural things might be happening in their lives that might be hindering them from the success that they should have, that we know that they can have. I tell parents the the story of the GI Bill in the United States, and I do a very truncated, long version of it, and I say to parents, do you know about the GI Bill? And a lot of them say yes. And then I say, do you know that the GI Bill, which was passed after World War II and, and benefited United States World War II veterans in relation to giving veterans housing, in relation to giving veterans money for college scholarships, for bank loans to get homes, et cetera. And I say that, do you know that those resources were not allocated equitably during this time period? Do you know that African-American GIs, if they were given money when they went to the bank to go get a loan, they were told, no, you can't get this loan. That they were told if you want to get a college education, sure, you can get a college education, but it's gonna have to be at an HBCU. And you know what? We're not providing federal funding to enough HBCUs to meet the demand of the students that are applying to these schools. So what are you going to go do? You can go to a vocational school, but we're not going to give you the same vocational training that we're going to give our white GIs. So it's about understanding that this is the, the system that these kids' families are often products of. So when we talk about what it means to have a fully holistic model, a full community model for our families, for our foster families, for our adoptive families, it's, it's understanding and having empathy for, for birth families who are coming from, from that lineage, who haven't been given these, these resources and these, these tools that others were given. And then it's also helping our kids understand that and then be able to dismantle that themselves, not only by telling that story, but by serving in organizations, by, by talking to other people, by educating other parents. And together as a society, interracial adoption in that way can really help us grow. That was not just so, now it wasn't just perfect. It's counsel and advice that I would give to all parents. Yes. Regardless of, of, uh, of, of, of foster care system or not, where it's you know, understanding that history and as parents being willing to educate ourselves on that as well uh, and providing those type of assets about what child needs is our imperative. I agree. I really do. We've been speaking with Tony Hines, who's the author of, uh, of the special memoir, The Son with Two Moms, uh, and discussion group facilitator with Adoptions Together. Tony, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As we wrap up this show, I just want to take a few moments just to leave you all with a few thoughts. Uh, this has been a very powerful show for me. And I cannot get out of my head the fact that right now there are 4,000 kids in the foster care system in the state of Maryland. 4,000 kids who are away from their birth parents in vulnerable situations, some of the most vulnerable situations. And we are asking ordinary people to do an extraordinary thing, which is love a child like their own, with a full understanding that this might not be permanent. And in fact, if the foster care system works as stated, with the goal of reunification, it won't be permanent. We are asking all parties, the child, the foster care family, 
and the biological parents to have faith in a system that their needs and their hopes and their concerns will be a priority. And what we've learned from the conversations today is that that is often not the case. And understand, families are fluid, families are complicated, but in many ways, family is all we've got. And not necessarily in the nuclear term, but having people in your life who love you as much as we are asking people to love themselves. Having people in their life who we are asking to sacrifice for children in the same way we are asking children to sacrifice for their own future. That's what a family is all about. We have children in our city right now who are looking for what many of us take for granted, permanence and peace. The commitment of families like Yvonne's and Carolyn's aren't just noteworthy, they really are truly awe-inspiring. And as Carolyn said so beautifully earlier, we have children in our city who deserve the love of two families. The responsibility of our future city is to ensure that these sacrifices are appreciated and that all elements of our foster care system, the kids, the foster families, and yes, the birth families, always feel supported and loved. Future City is an original feature of WYPR. The show airs on the third Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can explore past episodes online at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. Thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. 